Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and I want to thank you so much for stopping by. Well, the midterms are done, and all I can say is mea culpa. While I never thought there would be a red wave or a red tsunami or anything else the punditocracy had predicted, I did think, however, that the Democrats might lose both houses of Congress. Thankfully, that did not happen. And who does the Donald Trumpster blame for the GOP's lackluster showing? Anybody but him. But what's different about this midterm election is that many of his sycophants in the Republican Party have started to blame him. That's why you're seeing him lash out on the levels that he in fact is. And he's decided to wage war against a former ally. While we're at it, the midterm results did little to tamp down speculation, not just about Donald Trump, but also about Joe Biden's future as well. Now, you have also a following story. Emissions from carbon dioxide are set to reach record levels this year, just in case the poobahs at COP27 are finished patting themselves on the back. And the families of Sandy Hook just got told Alex Jones owes them more than a billion dollars. Where do we start? There are certain things in life where it doesn't matter if you're wrong or how many times you are wrong. Political punditry is one of them. Sports punditry is another, but they're a smaller gene pool. Here's the thing. Pundits can be wrong 99% of the time, but you wouldn't know it because the public never does. They just keep on predicting and keep on being wrong. If they're engaging or just mediagenic, they always get called back, no matter what their track record. Over and over and over, this takes place. And I'm not just blowing smoke here. You can watch it on TV on Sunday mornings and you see some of the same pundits, panelists, etc., back and back and back. Why? Because some producer may like them. Their accuracy never comes into question. Think for a minute what would happen if pundits' accuracy records were posted on some of these gas bag shows, just like in baseball. The public might just have a better idea whether they know what they're talking about or whether they're just blowing hot air. The same goes for polling. What are the accuracy figures for the polls that get highlighted so often in media? And keep in mind that there are many, immediate, uh, many media outlets, I should say, who in fact sponsor polls. I say this knowing full well no poll and no pundit can be right all the time. Yet an awful lot of pundits and polls got the results of these midterms quite wrong. That's the red wave, the red tsunami, and such. While I never use those terms, I admit I got it wrong. I figured both houses of Congress would fall by narrow margins to the Republicans. Again, I was wrong. It now looks like the Democrats, and in fact, the Democrats have, held serve in the Senate. Turns out Nevada was the key. The victory of Catherine Cortez Mastro makes the runoff in Georgia just about loom, that runoff between Warnock and Walker. There are a number of House races yet to be decided, 
And the actual margin between Democrats and Republicans in the House is not yet fully known. The immediate question is, what will the Democrats do in the short term? They still have the issue of lacking coherent messaging on their economic plans, and it still is the economy that concerns an awful lot of Americans. How will the Democrats reduce inflation and therefore price pressures on everyday Americans? How they deal with this will have an impact, a direct impact, on the presidential sweepstakes, which has already become a hot topic of conversation. Yet before we get to Biden, let's talk about the 800-pound albatross in the room, none other than Donald Trump. It should come as no surprise that he accepts no blame for the fact that many of the election deniers he endorsed lost in the midterms. He endorsed them in the primaries, they won the primaries, but when they went to the larger public, they didn't win. He in fact blamed people who, for example, talked him into backing Dr. Mehmet Oz against John Fetterman in the Pennsylvania Senate race. You see, it's never his fault. Could it be that the nation has finally turned the corner on his I won the election drivel. And by the way, as recently as a couple days before the midterms, he was still spouting that nonsense. Could even Republicans have moved on from Donald Trump? First of all, I wouldn't bet the complete store on this. He's got some earth-shattering announcement to make, and even though I didn't think he'd run again, I could be wrong. LOL. If he does, he may have a hard road to hope. Many who have been beholden to him inside the GOP now are going back channel to reporters saying maybe his time has come and gone. And you see, Donald Trump has a scorched earth policy toward people he considers to be disloyal or people who, for whatever reasons, differ with his orthodoxy. I, I shouldn't even call Donald Trump. I shouldn't use orthodoxy and Donald Trump in the same sentence. Now it seems he's got a rival inside the GOP who may not have a problem with taking him on. Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, run, won re-election with 60% of the vote. And what may be the surest sign that Trump is afraid of him, the former president and some of his allies have taken to calling him Ron DeSantis. This is largely because Trump takes credit for his initial gubernatorial election and DeSantis hasn't paid tribute by saying he won't run for president if Trump does. To the former guy, that is high treason. Whether it's to the Brahmins that normally run the GOP is anybody's guess. The Brahmins of the GOP have been keeping things pretty close to the chest lately. And by the way, Trump is not above insulting them or at least their families. He ended up bad-mouthing Mitch McConnell's wife, Elaine Chow, with a racist slur. See, because Donald Trump doesn't think he's racist, Donald's, Donald Trump will tell you what he said wasn't racist because he's Donald Trump. And nobody should ever, ever question Donald Trump. And by the way, how much election fraud is being alleged in these midterms? I'm just asking. Up next, let's take a look at Joe Biden. Will he run again in two years? This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. 
Welcome back to The Intersection. Despite low approval ratings, Joe Biden didn't do too badly in these midterm elections. Of course, he wasn't on the ballot, but his policies certainly were. And it turns out his party didn't get shellacked the way Barack Obama did in 2010, or Donald Trump did in 2018. This would seem to mean he'll run for re-election in 2024. However, the whispers have already begun. After all, he'll be 82 by Election Day 2024. Those same whispers are saying he's lost a step in the two years since he won the office. That and those popularity numbers have some people worried. But keep in mind, his lack of popularity is also from the same polling that gave us the red wave. It's telling, though, that the man who was the center of Biden's successful run for president South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn declined to answer when asked whether Biden should run again. Before the midterm, polling, got that again, showed a majority of Democrats wanted somebody else to run in 2024. There are a few people in the frame to run should Biden say no. Pivotal to his decision will be whether his wife, Dr. Jill Biden, thinks he should. If she does not, Joe Biden would be a one-term president, and do not underestimate Jill Biden's power in this regard. Trump and others are still waiting in the high grass for Joe Biden to say, I'm running for re-election. The fact of the matter is, he has lost a step. He's made a couple of misstatements, malapropisms, those kinds of things, which he has before. It's a hallmark of his time in the Senate. But it's different this time around. The rigors of a man turning 82, of the campaign, of having to be places day after day, week after week, to try and make his case could be too much. And again, it's going to be up to the first lady to decide. So who's in line to take his place if Joe Biden says no? This, I know, is inside baseball speculation at this point, yet that's what's happening. Inside baseball speculation. And here it is. Naturally, Vice President Kamala Harris would be logically first in line. She appears to have a downside that would be problematic to anyone running against a Republican, but you know what? That's then. Her 2020 presidential campaign was widely regarded as a car crash by, of course, Democratic insiders. She also, on the flip side, energized the Democratic base in 2020, one of the big reasons Biden won in the first place. If she were to run, she'd have to make, like anybody else who might run, including Joe Biden, have to make a credible case for fixing the economy. And of course, Democrats have a tougher ability to make a case on the economy than do Republicans. And while we're at it, why is that? Republicans largely get a pass from the American people, mind you, on all things economic, while Democrats are blamed for virtually everything, even things they have no control over. Now, there is this divide that runs through American politics and has run for a long time. That there are certain things Democrats do well and certain things Republicans do well. 
national security, the economy. Those are supposed to be the province of the Republicans. The Democrats do well on fighting injustice, on civil rights, etc. And the fact of the matter is, the Republicans really don't have a place to hang their hats when it comes to economics. You've got conservative ideologues in the economic community, like Lawrence Kudrow, Kudlow, excuse me, and others, who are constantly predicting things that turn out to be wrong. He's one of the pundits I was talking about earlier. And the fact of the matter is, Republicans are actually no better at running the economy. I had this discussion with a friend not that long ago. When Barack Obama was president, the unemployment, when he took office, the unemployment rate was 10%. He got it down to 4.4. Donald Trump gets it from 4.4 down to the mid threes and everybody thinks he's accomplished a great thing. But he didn't have the heavy lift that Barack Obama had. But yet the Republicans get the credit for the economy. It's amazing, amazing to contemplate. And the pundits who make every political contest a horse race also have Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, Senators Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren, and Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer in the frame to run should Biden decline. All have pluses and minuses, but for my money, the two to watch are Buttigieg and Whitmer. I don't think most people know that Buttigieg finished third in the Democratic primaries two years ago. Klobuchar has found a way to bring progressives and moderates together in her home state of Minnesota, but will that resonate on the national stage? Whitmer is tough having survived a kidnap attempt. Did people forget that some people, militia people or whomever tried to actually kidnap her? And Whitmer is also very, very popular across the so-called Rust Belt. It looks like the Democrats have a deeper bench than many many people, including myself, have given them credit for. Whether they have to use it remains to be seen. When we come back, as participants pat themselves on the back after COP27, new figures show carbon dioxide emissions could reach record levels for 2022. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. You might think those people attending the COP27 gathering in Egypt were serious about accomplishing something anything to put the brakes on global warming. Well, maybe not so much this year. Carbon dioxide emissions are on pace to be the highest on record. I'm gonna say that again. Carbon dioxide emissions on the planet are on pace to be the highest on record. Where does this come from? And by the way, that's a total of 36.6 billion tons of CO2 from oil, natural gas, and coal. Now, while the climate conference shouldn't be responsible completely for the increase, you have to wonder what concretely is being done to change that upward trend. Recent figures show relatively small, a relatively small number of countries are responsible for the majority of the pollution. 
China is number one at 32%. The U.S. is second with 14 Europe and India are at 8% each. The war in Ukraine and COVID-19 certainly accounted for declines over the past couple of years, but the increase is still troubling. We've talked at length about the peril we're leaving to our descendants because we can't get a handle on climate change. We're so busy trying to point fingers, a solution just gets lost. I was watching a show the other day when one panelist, the person who really has no expertise at all about climate change, began pointing the finger at China and India as if our polluting is okay because they pollute. Yes, there's been some progress in that rich nations are finally recognizing their obligation to financial help, uh, financially that is, help poorer nations that are usually the people suffering as a result of climate change. But unless there is more effort to lower carbon emissions, those developing countries won't be able to spend the money. In the U.S., the Congress has smartly allocated $370 billion for things like wind turbines, electric vehicles, heat pumps, and other environmentally friendly initiatives. The rising carbon emissions worldwide should scare everyone that knows about it. And I do mean everyone. This is not about reparations. This is not about all the stuff that people go back and forth on with this. Because some of the same people who say, well, why should we do anything? Because the Chinese are doing so. And hey, the Chinese have to be responsible for what they do. But some of these people were the same people who said climate change was a myth. Climate change was a hoax, etc., etc., etc. Before we go, a little bit of good news. Alex Jones, you remember him, now has to pay a total of $1.4 billion to eight Sandy Hook families who sued him for defamation. That includes $473 million in punitive damages. And yet, Jones may still be able to peddle his nonsense. The judge in this case also essentially froze Jones's assets until a hearing on December, on December 2nd. Alex Jones has tried every legal maneuver under the sun to hide his assets from those who want him to pay for his lies. His parent company filed for bankruptcy, which the families are contesting. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. It couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Before we go, this week marks the 30th anniversary of my marriage to my lovely wife. It was 30 years ago this week that we came together at St. Paul's Church on the campus of Columbia University and said our vows. We renewed them a few years ago. And I have to say, I love her more today than I did the day I married her. And, by the way, she's our executive producer. So, I love you, Kim, and thank you for the hard work you do to make this podcast happen. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.